The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in things that never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back, everybody. Your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. Thanks for listening to the show, and uh, we're delighted to be here on The Blaze, and I'm grateful to you for, for participating and for listening. And uh, who better than a rabbi to tell you about the things that never change? Because the more clear we all are upon those things that never change, the better equipped we are to deal with all the stuff that does change around us. And here is something that never changes. One of the things that never changes is that people do get sick, people want to be healthy, and that people need medical care. And uh, for this will be the last week of the podcast that is recorded on a small boat that my wife and I are navigating off coastal British Columbia. And one of the charming aspects, I mean, we love so much about this lifestyle, but uh, one of the great things we enjoy is that we pull into small harbors. Sometimes they're fishing villages. Uh, sometimes they're small places that, uh, that have economies based on lumber, lumber or tourism, but small places. And uh, you go up. Um, to and you know you find the, the 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 dock master and you pay a few dollars of dockage fee and then you go over to the the inevitable coffee shop that's at the end of the dock and it's it's never a name brand coffee shop and uh, you know who I mean I'm not going to mention them by name because they're not advertisers on our show so I'm not going to give them free advertising but no it's never any of those it's usually some local coffee so it's always a pleasure and here's the best part. You run into people, and because it's a small village and because you've arrived by boat, people talk and people converse, and we invariably end up inviting people back to the boat uh, for, a, for a drink of something and then a chance to sit and talk. Well, one of the people that uh, I met this morning uh, was an absolutely charming young woman who works as a nurse. She's a very highly qualified nurse um, in – and I – I'm, I'm going to uh, give her um, a uh, – I'm going to withhold information about her identity because I want her to be able to talk freely. But she's a nurse in a large American city hospital, and um, I'll just leave it at that. But she had so much to say. She was so fascinating in terms of the inside view of what really goes on. Is Obamacare working? Uh, is medicine getting better and better? Uh, is the illegal immigration policy of this country working really well? Uh, you know, when you are a nurse on the floor of a major hospital, I do believe you know more about what's going on than any doctor does. And uh, Nurse Michelle Jeffries, RN, that means registered nurse, um, is living proof of that. She, <laughs> she knows so much. And I thought to myself, you know, I've got a few minutes time with her before I go on and do the rest of this podcast. And I thought this will be uh, fun to, to chat with her for a few minutes. And I know that it was something that uh, you would enjoy hearing about as well. So um, uh, first of all, then, Nurse Michelle, thank you for spending a little bit of time with me on our boat. 
and um, and I hope you're having a wonderful vacation as well. And let's let's start off with uh, the sort of wards you work on in this hospital. What sort of hours? And also a little bit about your training. Well, thank you for having me on your beautiful boat. This is very enjoyable. Um, I was trained. I have a four-year bachelor's degree. Um, and then I went back to school and I did a 15-month highly intensive uh, program that graduated uh, with a registered nurse degree and a bachelor's in nursing. So it's quite a bit of schooling I've had. Um, and I now work in a very busy city hospital, as you mentioned, um, on a very acute floor. So patients coming in from the emergency room, as soon as they're stabilized, are sent up to a floor like mine, the one that I work on. And, um, and again, I will just uh, ask your forbearance, all of you, because uh, you will hear the noise of uh, boats puttering by or you might hear seagulls, or you might even hear the odd seaplane landing literally uh, outside the windows of our boat. So uh, uh, do, do be aware of that and, uh, and, and forgive us for that. But meanwhile, um, Nurse Michelle, uh, I suppose I wanted to start off by, um, by asking you this. Everybody, I, I've got to think you go into nursing with a, with a, with an, a certain aspect of... Um, altruism, a certain desire to do something meaningful and to make a difference and to help. And, and certainly you, all the nurses I've ever met, and you are a, a glowing example of this, uh, radiate a, a genuine care for, for people um, who are uh, under their treatment. So I guess I want to ask you, are there any ways in which you've had cold water dashed in your face? Are there any ways in which uh, life now on the floor in your ward and you say to yourself you know this is not what i signed up for this is this this is in there's a lot here that i don't like this i never knew i did not know that nursing would involve this or has everything been just as you expected i wish i could say that everything's been as i expected but i definitely went into nursing um very bright-eyed and maybe with um, colored sunglasses on, uh, thinking that it would be a lot of, you know, just really caring for people who genuinely needed my help and making a difference to people who, you know, really had nowhere else to turn at some of the worst times of their lives. And, you know, while there definitely are those moments, um, unfortunately, I would have to say they're rather few and far between. On a typical day, I have somewhere between six and seven patients, and I would say out of those patients, there's probably one or two of those patients who really need me and and are in the hospital for what I would call the right reasons. Um, I've come to, to realize over the, you know, five or so years that I've been in this hospital, it's a busy city hospital. Um, we care for a lot of different types of people, uh, but a lot of the people coming in are um, – drug-seeking, which I, I, you know, you're not really supposed to say, um, but I've had patients tell me, honestly, that they're there, you know, because they, they want painkillers. You know, patients are typically very honest with me, have a good relationship with all my patients for the most part, and they'll tell you that they came in to get, to get a certain type of drug, and the, very honestly will tell me that if the doctor's not willing to prescribe them what they want, they'll simply turn around and come right back in the emergency room and go to a different floor where a different attending will be willing to prescribe them what they're looking for. 
and just listening to this, the, I mean, the cost, I don't know the exact cost of, of what it costs the taxpayer every time a patient is admitted to an emergency room and then placed on a floor, but it cannot be cheap because um, they're billing them for every little thing. The, the, when the breakdown of the bill is, you know, putting in an IV is a certain bill, and, you know, the changing of the sheets is a certain bill, and hanging a bag of IV fluid is a few hundred dollars, and they, there's no even thought that about the cost. They'll simply, they'll tell me, I'll go right back down to the emergency room or I'll go to a one of the other numerous hospitals in the city. Um, and that's just the reality I've, I've met. A lot of the patients are coming in like that with no really regard for how much it's going to cost. And then you'll have patients who are coming in on their own private insurance, and they are literally dying to get out of the hospital. I mean, they, they could be still very, very sick, and they'll be begging us to discharge them because they know what kind of bill they're going to be racking up. Compared that with someone who knows that they won't be on the receiving end of the bill, uh, we've had patients stay for months at a time just because they don't want to leave. So let me, let me just try and uh, uh, drill down to what I, I think I'm hearing under the surface. Um, how, let me ask you this first of all. Um, I've I got to think that if I'm, God forbid, if I have to be in a hospital, I've got to think that somebody like you must be a ray of sunshine. Um, you know, doctors have been in there. They've had their little meetings and their consultations. And then you come in and uh, you, you talk to me like a human being and you make me feel better. I, I think I would be overflowing with, with gratitude toward you. So my question is, if this is, if this is a fair question at all, could you say what percentage of your patients typically radiate uh, gratitude to you? And what percentage, if any, radiate a sense of entitlement which usually comes with a sense of resentment and, um, and, and, a, and a sort of demanding attitude rather than a, a, a grateful attitude. Is, is, I'd love to hear you on that. There are definitely patients who are very grateful, and those patients are lovely to take care of. You know, they really feel appreciative of all the help that they're getting, and they're grateful for the smallest things. Um, but I would say that the majority of, of the patients that I take care of come in with a very um, large sense of entitlement and make it a lot more difficult to take care of them, but uh, a lot of them really are very entitled. You'll have, you know, patients demanding things, and, and that, I would say, is the biggest difference between what I expected coming out of nursing school and what the reality is, because so much of my time that I, I really need to take care of patients who are genuinely sick and need help is taken up by demands from patients who don't honestly need to be in the hospital in the first place. A lot of um, just time-consuming activities, things that they demand, there's no thank you, there's no please, uh, just a lot of, of trivial matters that, the, that they want dealt with, which um, comes with no manners or, or anything at all, and really it takes up a lot of time that I thought coming out of nursing school would be devoted to taking care of patients who, who really need my help. Um, so as a nurse, uh, Nurse Michelle, do you know whether a patient in front of you has private insurance or whether this is a patient who walks through the door with, with no insurance, with no nothing at all? And as I understand it, legally an emergency room has to take somebody regardless of whether they have any insurance or regardless of whether they have any money. But by the time a patient makes it to your floor, do you know 
who is an insurance patient and who's going to be paying for their stay and who is uh, an indigent patient who's going to walk out of the door uh, without having paid a penny or without in any insurance that would cover any of the costs. Do you know? I do know, um, and I have to say that it wouldn't make a difference to me the way that I take care of them. I would take care of all my patients the same way, regardless of, of whether they're coming in with private insurance, whether they're paying out of pocket, because we do have those patients as well who are paying in cash, um, or patients who are coming in and being taken care of by taxpayer money. It wouldn't make a difference to me how I treat them at all, but I do notice a difference in the way that I get treated by those patients, and I do know I do know, you know, how they're paying for their hospital stay or how they're not paying for their hospital stay. And just after, you know, a few years of being there, you kind of can notice a pattern. And I, and I don't treat them any differently, but I definitely get treated differently. That's for sure. Okay. Tell me the truth now, Nurse Michelle. Have you ever had an Arab patient walk in with a suitcase of cash? Yes, I have. A few times, actually. Um, a few times. And Nailed that one, didn't yeah. I? Um, no, I, I, I've actually, I, I had heard stories uh, like that, but I just didn't know how common they were. So it's actually happened to you more than once? Yes. Yeah, a few times you'll have patients who come over for care, um, and they they generally come in with a big entourage, and they come suitcases full of cash, for sure. Um, that's <laughs> now, what, what percentage of the patients you see typically what percentage are patients who are going to pay, either through insurance or out of pocket or out of a suitcase of cash if they speak Arabic, um, or uh, and versus those who are uninsured, nothing? And, and I'll come to the illegal immigration question in just a moment. But right now, if you had a guess um, of your patients, what percentage of them are paying? What percentage of them are going to be covered by the taxpayer? Roughly... I mean, it, uh, it's just a rough estimate here. I would say maybe 10 to 15 percent are paying with actual insurance that they pay for um, every month, and I would say the majority, vast majority of them are being paid for by um, taxpayer, taxpayer money. So you're saying as, as much as maybe 75, 80, 85 percent uh, of the patients you see at your hospital, which is a, a large well-known hospital in a major American city, uh, as many of them, as many as 80%, maybe more, are not paying a thing and are going to be taken care of at the cost of the taxpayer. Yes. Um, folks, it's, it's, a, uh, it's a disturbing story, and there's even more, and I'm going to check to see if I can uh, have Nurse Michelle on for another session. Uh, but right now, quick break, and... Uh, uh, you are listening to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show on the Blaze. My website, youneedarabbi.com. Don't forget to go there and subscribe to my wee free weekly email for tools. And uh, be sure to send me a note letting me know how you feel about the show. Uh, quick break. Back for, in, for another segment in just a moment with Nurse Michelle Jeffries, a registered nurse with uh, an amazing story to tell. She's really held me quite breathless uh, since we started chatting together on this uh, little remote uh, outpost in British Columbia. Don't go away. You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Find more at theblaze.com slash radio. If they are not able to retrieve all of the emails on that deleted server, it would only be because of a very deliberate uh, very specific attempt to go to considerable lengths 
to uh, to overwrite the drive multiple times, right? I mean, how if you overwrite a drive enough times, my understanding is you probably can't get the stuff off of there. Buck Sexton, weekdays, noon to 2 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Hi, everybody. Thank you for sticking with the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show here on the Blaze. And um, I really enjoyed meeting the nurse and talking with her. And um, I've got uh, one more segment with her uh, coming up next. But uh, first of all, I wanted to let you know some of the results I had uh, to my question. I had asked you uh, to go to my website at youneedarabbi.com and to click on the Contact Us tab, uh, thereby enabling you to shoot me an email, which I promised you I would get. And I'd ask you specifically how comfortable you were with the, um, with the format we're using here. Essentially, a two-hour format broken up into eight uh, close to 15-minute segments. So there's a lot of material, and it's, it's fairly dense, and it's fairly long. But my assumption on a podcast is that you would interrupt it. You know, you wouldn't take it in one long uh, swallow. You'd break it down into smaller doses and take it as you felt like it, you know, while you were commuting or while you were exercising out at the gym or whenever else. Uh, listening would be a, a very good use of time. And I did get some responses, and um, they were gratifying. I'm going to share with you um, the, the response. I think this is all the responses I've got. I may be mistaken on that, but uh, it's certainly um, a good representation of them. So I'll just read them to you quickly. This is from Kyle, who writes, Thank you, Rabbi Lappin, for your wonderful podcast. I enjoy every minute of it, and I learn a great deal from it. You present your point of view so plainly and lay out your argument so skillfully that I hardly realize that the podcast is almost two hours long. God bless you and keep up the good work. <laughs> and I wonder, um, again, if I, if I got any <laughs> really negative ones, frankly, I'd read those to you as well because, uh, uh, first of all, if, if they're just abusive, then I think they're funny and you probably will too. I didn't get any abusive ones, but I, I sometimes get abusive mail after radio broadcasts. And uh, secondly, if, um, if, if they're negative, I usually learn from them. And, uh, and I told you I did want to hear the truth of how you felt about it. So uh, uh, as it turns out, there are no real uh, compelling negative ones, but, but uh, it's a mixed bag. Um, Pamela writes, I recently found out that you're doing a podcast on the Blaze Radio Network. I was thrilled to hear this and even more thrilled to listen to each and every one of them. I've been a long-time student of yours and have purchased every audio CD in your store. Uh, by the way, that would be our store at www.youneedarabbi.com. Uh, Pamela continues, I enjoy listening to them often as I travel back and forth to work. I want you to know that I enjoy your teaching so very much. I feel blessed beyond my worth to have a rabbi like you. Thank you so much. Look, uh, this stuff is uh, like massaging me with warm butter, you understand. It, this is not painful for me to read these at all. Um, here's Nancy who writes, just finished listening to the podcast today and heard your request for feedback on the length of the program. Uh, definitely not too long. I thoroughly enjoy listening and would be sad if you shortened it. You are one of my favorites. Thank you for all the time and effort you put into sharing your wisdom. And uh, as I said, that was Nancy. And uh, uh, here's Michael from Florida writes, enjoyed and learned from your podcast, Rabbi. 
guests I'm a Catholic guy with my own rabbi. Perhaps this exists and I've missed it, but having a quick table of contents for what items you're covering that day helps me come back to it sometime in the future rather than have to sift through multiple shows. And, um, okay, that is, that is a very, very good idea. And, Michael, I will tell you this, that if you go to soundcloud.com, soundcloud.com, search for Lappin, uh, you will get to my page where you will find all the uh, current podcasts up. Right now, they're, what, I don't know, five, six, seven, something like that. And uh, each one does have a – it's not a table of contents, but it is a list of topics covered. But um, I will uh, try – I don't fully understand whether you mean you wanted a, a, a written table of contents or you wanted me to start off the podcast in segment one talking about – uh, the topics that will be covered in the rest of the, the podcast. I, c I guess I could do that if it would be helpful, but um, that is uh, – I'm going to try and get some clarification. Maybe I'll, I'll email you back asking for clarification. But uh, Michael's the CEO of a company in uh, Palm Harbor, Florida. Um, Dawn lives in Hayward, California, right – just a quick note to let you know, I think the length of your podcast is perfect. I thoroughly enjoy listening and always look forward to the next one. Um, okay. And I suppose you're getting completely fed up with this narcissistic self-indulgent <laughs> exercise of me listening to people loving my work. Um, you, can, you can jump ahead uh, for a minute or two, and, and that should take you safely past the remaining letters, each one of which I shall diligently and eloquently articulate in detail. Um, here is Mark from South Bend, Indiana. <coughs> Dear Rabbi Lappin, I'm a huge fan of all aspects of The Blaze, and I was glad that you started doing a weekly podcast. You asked for comments on whether it could be shorter, and my vote would be yes. I think somewhat shorter would be better. The reason being is that about the same time your podcasts are available, the podcasts from other people are available as well. They come out at the same time. And um, that th then there is the regular Saturday lineup on the Blaze Radio uh, starting from 6 a.m. until 6 p.m., and I try never to miss that. So you can see my weekends are pretty full. Regardless of what you decide to do, I will continue listening either way. Thank you. And that's from Mark in Indiana. Uh, thank you, Mark. That sounds like an awful lot of listening you're doing. And um, so uh, uh, based on, on the, the sort of response that I'm getting, I think I'm going to continue this format um, for another a month or two or thereabouts. And I think by that time uh, I'll be able to get a very good sense of how it's working for me and how it's working for you. So I just don't want to be premature in making a change. I just want to keep it as it is for a little while until uh, I can see whether the numbers reflect satisfaction. But that's really the bottom line, isn't it? That's how I'm really going to be able to tell how things are. Um, uh, Thomas writes, I think the longer podcast length is perfect. You're able to really develop multiple topics and give them the time that they really deserve. This is quite a refreshing change from the typical attention deficit disorder culture we seem to have descended into. Keep up the great work, and that's Thomas. Thanks, Thomas. Appreciate that. And, and he's absolutely right. Uh, and this is evidenced by something I've mentioned in the podcast in the m in before, which is that um, scenes in older Hollywood movies, you go back to the black and white era, in fact, I mean, frankly, all the way up to about 1960, when, as you know, I believe many, many things changed. I think it was an epochal milestone in American history. Uh, but up to that point, scenes, when, in other words, the director would leave the camera running for sometimes two to three minutes. A long, I mean, that was not an unusual scene length. 
uh, today on both movies and television, scenes have dropped to about 15 seconds on average, and that this has an effect on uh, people's attention span, particularly young people. Um, a great deal of the intellectual, emotional, and mental development is shaped by uh, large hours, many, many hours they spend watching television or watching television production on the internet. It's pretty serious. Um, then we've got, um, I, I, that's, that's pretty much it actually, isn't it? I think that that takes care of uh, much of the feedback. Yeah, I, th I seem to think there was another bunch of it as well, but I will save you <laughs> the torment of more of that. But uh, as I said, you can be quite sure that I myself uh, did read it all and, uh, and enjoyed them all and, uh, and took it all very much to heart. And uh, uh, I, uh, I have had other conversations uh, with um, Nurse Michelle, and the, the ones I, um, I recorded and, uh, and, and, and I'm sharing with you on the podcast was the one you just heard in the last segment, and uh, we're finishing off in the next segment, basically dealing with very much the question of um, basically what the healthcare business looks like to a professional insider. And uh, I've, I've spoken with, with emergency room doctors and... Um, and uh, I must say, in general, my impression is that if you really want to know what's going on in a hospital, you want to speak to the nurses. Uh, and it's understandable, right? You know, doctors are, are seeing many, many, many patients, whereas uh, a nurse is dealing with, uh, you know, a floor, or part of a floor. It might be six, seven, eight, nine, ten patients, depending. But she's also uh, eyes and ears. She's, uh, she's there all the time. This nurse I was talking to, um, in the earlier segment was uh, a 12-hour shift. Hard work, you know, on your feet for most of 12 hours and dealing with human beings who, even at their best, um, are not at their best, if you know what I mean. Uh, and then she's also, as she explained and will explain more, dealing with um, a part of America's population that represents a massive problem. And uh, whether they're illegal immigrants or not illegal immigrants, they are people who have not been acculturated into American values. Um, and th these things are very noticeable. Um, in terms of sort of American values, uh, you know, don't play your music so loud that it impinges on the lives of the people near you, whether it's in your car with the windows rolled down or whether it's out of your uh, apartment window or whether it's from the, uh, the boom box you're carrying on your shoulders, although nowadays most people are, are beaming that audio directly into their ears with, uh, with ear pods or earplugs. And, uh, but, you know, there will be some of it. Another one is, uh, you, you know, you stop your, your car at a crosswalk to let somebody a pedestrian over, or maybe it's not even at a crosswalk, and the person saunters in, in a very insolent fashion. Have you ever seen that? Uh, they're deliberately taking as long as they possibly can to walk across. Okay, that's not an old-time American value. American value is consideration, concern. You're living with other people, and you're part of a community of other people. And if somebody stops you, you acknowledge their inconvenience on your part by uh, stepping to it, you know, moving right along and uh, striding across. Uh, 
to the to whatever extent you're you're capable of doing so. Um, how's about pleases and thank yous? Okay, uh, acknowledgement again on the road. Uh, somebody lets you in uh, to a line you're merging in, or somebody stops to let you turn into you know, a wave of acknowledgement. These things lubricate human interaction, and uh, they make you feel warm and positive towards your fellow human beings, which is what makes things work better. And all of the, these things are terribly important. And, and these things are that I've been talking about are the minor symptoms of it. On a far deeper level, uh, we have such things as uh, deferment of gratification. We have such things as self-discipline. We have such things as impulse control. These are part of the American values. And how do I, how do I mean this? Well, if you go back to the textbooks that young students used to study in American schools, uh, and I'm not talking, you don't have to go back as far as the Northwest Ordinance that, that, that essentially set up a vision of public schools in America. Um, you don't have to go back as far as that. You can go back to the 50s and 40s and before that. You will see many, many, many American kids uh, grew up learning to read on the McGuffey readers. And if you don't know what the McGuffey readers are, do yourself a favor. And when you have a few moments to reflect on life in America, where we've been and where we're headed, uh, go and look up the McGuffey readers. You'll be astounded that these constituted the major parts of, of uh, uh, teaching young students to read literature. Now, the, the way it's developed in public education today is that reading is just a technical skill. And there's no discussion, there's no thought given. And I've, I've read some of the minutes of education, uh, educators' conferences, where no thought whatsoever is given to the idea that uh, values are being transmitted as well as just the uh, vocabulary and grammatical skills that come from learning to read properly. And so as a result, they've decided that uh, as long as the kids are reading, it doesn't matter what they read. And they give kids sheer garbage to read in schools today, the so-called adult, uh, young adult novels. Um, they're horrible, horrible things. But um, uh, all of this is designed to um, uh, ultimately to change the value structure of America. And so the very concept of deferment of gratification, you don't do what you feel like. You control your impulses. You discipline yourself that you have to do your homework before you play, that work comes before leisure. These things that have made America and make any civilization function are absolutely crucial. And, um, and whether or not a lot of people in a society is an asset or a drawback depends very much on whether the people have been, if you like, acculturated acculturated to uh, Western civilization is what it's all about. Anyways, um, what we're going to do is we're going to uh, go back to uh, Nurse Michelle. I want you to hear another uh, quick and final segment on some of the things that she encountered. And then when we come back after her, there was a another part of a conversation I had with her, and this had to do with, um, you know, she wa wanted to get married and the kind of men she's meeting. And I decided to compile a list of things that women should know before they invest a single evening in dating a guy. There are certain things every woman should know about reading men. 
and uh, I am going to disclose this here. This is immensely valuable, so much so you should start thinking of me as the Mother Teresa of podcasting. I'm really going to be doing you a favor uh, coming up right after the next segment with Nurse Michelle. Stay tuned. Ancient solutions to modern problems. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Jay Severin. What happens is someone says, okay, so what you're telling me is if we do more of X, we win. And someone on the staff says, yeah, but we need to get our message out. We need to have more money for commercials. And the candidate fumes and says, we don't have it. Jay Severin. Weekdays, 2 to 5 p.m. Eastern. On the Blaze Radio Network. With stories in the areas of family, friendship, faith, and finance, this is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Only on the Blaze Radio Network On Demand. We're back, everybody, and thank you again for being tuned to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show on the Blaze. I am very fortunate to have run into, as, as we run into all kinds of people up here uh, cruising during the summer in British Columbia, Canada, uh, but we've run into a young woman, Nurse Michelle Jeffries, who works in a large city hospital in a large American city. And uh, because I've asked her to be very candid about what she encounters, I agreed to not disclose uh, the city or the name of the hospital she works in. But, um, again, thanks so much, Nurse Michelle. It's, it's been great getting to know you and spending some time with you here. And uh, in the last segment, uh, you, in almost in passing, you alluded to uh, constant trivial demands being made of you uh, by patients who are not paying, whereas you, you indicated that those who have insurance, those who are paying, tended to be polite and grateful. Uh, you said you got a lot of trivial demands. You got a sense of entitlement, uh, rudeness from people who are, uh, who are going to be walking out there without paying a penny. What sort of things do you find going on? Well, I think that one thing is that when people are paying for their own insurance, they really they you understand the value of something when you pay for it. When you're given something for free, I feel like you you really don't understand the value of it, and that's in all facets of life. But it really has come across very clear to me in the hospital because I do find that that patients who are on their own insurance are very very aware of how much things are going to cost and the type of effort and work that the nurses and the doctors and all the staff put in for them because there there is a sense that they are paying for part of it and they tend to value what they're paying for and demand a certain level of value but um, I have noticed that that they are quite happy with what with what they get they're very understanding very grateful very appreciative um, when you're given everything for free and you have no you don't need to have any concept of how much things cost and there's no concept of uh, the value of what's being given to you patients tend to get very demanding and I have had patients who are in the hospital who on their their own account they will tell me that they don't really need to be there um, that they've come in because they've run out of pain pills or they've come in because they need you know a place to, to stay for a few days um, they are tend to be more demanding and and let me just clarify that I'm more than happy to do anything for my patients but like I mentioned before it's a very busy hospital I have six or seven sometimes eight patients on a very busy day um, a lot of them are very acute patients very sick and there's just no understanding um, that I'm 
that if you're busy with something else, it's unacceptable. And uh, the demands can be as minute as, you know, helping them figure out what, what channel of TV station, you know, they're looking for. They want their bed sheets changed twice a day, which I'm more than happy to do, you know, provided I have the time and provided another patient doesn't need me more at the moment. But there's just a very um, a strong feeling of, of entitlement and demanding and not understanding that there might be patients who are sicker than them or patients who need something more than they do or um, that refilling their water jar might not be, you know, at the top of my priority list at this moment, you know, like I said, I'm more than happy to do it, provided that another patient doesn't need me more, that I have the time. But it, it can get very um, disheartening, and, and it can kind of it can kind of jade you a little bit when you're really doing your best and trying to take care of people to the best of your ability, and there's just no gratitude, and there's just a sense that, that you're just there to serve them and, and not understanding that, that there's a value in a service being provided. Um, you um, uh, you are aware at the same time. Do you also have a sense and awareness of who is um, an illegal uh, immigrant? I mean, I'm quite sure you're dealing with a lot of people. Um, <laughs> the government euphemistically says of color. I'm sure you're dealing with a lot of people who are not born in the United States of America. Uh, do you have a sense of what proportion of the people you're dealing with are um, have no right to be in the country at all in the first place? Yeah, um, I, I am aware of it. A, a lot of patients are there for quite some time, and I do become friendly with them. And, and people discuss, people become, people disclose a lot to their nurses. You spend a lot of time with your patients. So, I, yeah, I would say that I typically am aware of, of people who are not in the country as legal citizens. And, again, an approximate percentage of all the patients you see guess that an approximate percentage of people who are there and are illegal? It's a good question. Um, it would have to be a very rough estimate. I'd say um, on a weekly basis, if I'm working three, you know, three 12-hour shifts a week, I'm running into two or three patients a week um, that are illegal immigrants, I would say. Um, now, you said something a little earlier that uh, – that, that went by me and I've been thinking about it. And I was like, wait, wait a second, this is very, very hard. You, you spoke about patients who don't leave, patients who – I'm not sure I understand that. What, I mean, what, what happens ordinarily in my experience is that the doctor says, well, you know, you're okay, everything is good, you're, you'll be discharged this morning, goodbye. Why – what do you mean when you say that there are patients who could be with you for a very long time and yet are not sick? What does that mean? Well, hospitals and the whole medical industry are very, very tightly controlled environments um, with a lot of rules and a lot of, a lot of laws in place and legalities about how the rights of the patients, I would say. There's a lot, um, a lot of, of paperwork, a lot of legislation, a lot of laws there to protect the patients, I would say. And one of the things, and I'm not precisely um, certain exactly why or which law in place um, stipulates this, but hospitals are not allowed to discharge patients in a way that would be considered an unsafe discharge. So if you have a patient come in who's homeless, they come in off the streets, you cannot then discharge them back to the streets. That would be considered an unsafe discharge. And the, the 
discharge process is very convoluted because a lot of people, I mean, they're paying salaries for social workers, they're paying salaries for patient care coordinators to, to have the job of making sure that the patients are discharged somewhere safe. Um, we have patients coming in from shelters who will then refuse to go back to that shelter. And they will stay for sometimes weeks more at a time um, on the taxpayer's dollar. And then it's really just a hotel because they've been considered medically safe for discharge for a week or two at this point. And they're, you know, eating three meals a day and having their sheets changed daily and TV service and phone service. And they will stay until they agree that they are being discharged where they want to go because you also um, – Medicaid allows you to refuse your discharge. So if you are considered medically safe for discharge by the doctor, the patient has the right to then say, I don't consider myself safe for discharge. And they are then allowed to stay for an extra 24 hours at a minimum. Um, so if you decide you don't want to leave, that's one way not to leave. If you decide you don't want to leave because you don't want to go back to the shelter where you were um, came in from, that's another way not to leave. And if you're homeless, you're definitely not leaving until we find somewhere for you to go that you also want to go to. And I think these laws were put in place with very positive intentions. I can completely understand why they were put into place. And um, it's to protect the patients, but it ends up really draining the system because people, people know how to use the laws to their advantage. And they're on a busy, in a busy metropolitan hospital on a floor with 50 patients, Half of them could be just sitting there, totally healthy, taking up bed space from patients who really need the space because they don't feel like leaving. You mentioned, um, while we were chatting earlier today, uh, you mentioned the fact that uh, you get rated by the patients. And um, give me some examples of that and, and how that works and, uh, and, and ways in which you've been rated. Well, this is the part that I feel the most strongly about, and it's a part that's really just recently coming into play with um, the new medical system in this country. Um, but a lot of the hospital's reimbursement is now based upon patient satisfaction surveys. So when patients leave and they're surveyed about how satisfactory they found their stay in the hospital, and then those surveys are then collected and um, the hospital gets rated in different areas. and if we're not rated highly enough, we don't get reimbursed. Um, this is now the way that, that insurance is working in, in America. Um, it's part of the way that it works. So I've seen some of these surveys, and we go over them. Um, and some of the questions will be, did the nurses um, respond adequately to your pain? Um, did the nurses manage your pain appropriately? And like I mentioned before, I think this probably came from a very positive place of when patients are in pain, they need to be responded to adequately and appropriately and quickly. Um, you don't want anyone to be in pain. But it's really being taken advantage of right now because I, I've had patients who, there's only so much the nurse can do, right? The nurse isn't writing orders and the nurse isn't deciding on her own volition how many milligrams of morphine to give to somebody. But um, the nurse, once the order's in place, the nurse should then act quickly and give the patient the medication that's been ordered for them. So patients will tell me that I'm doing everything I can for them. They'll, they'll say, I know you're doing everything you can for me, but I didn't want morphine, I wanted Dilaudid. And I know when we get their surveys back, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be rated a zero on that. We get the majority of surveys we get, because we go over them every month, um, rate the nurses as zero in the area of pain control. And 
I think the question is written poorly. I think the idea of reimbursing hospitals based on what type of drugs we give out to patients is very, a very poor idea. But um, we end up, it feels useless, kind of the work that I do, because no matter how hard I work, if the patient wants 10 milligrams of, of morphine and I give them six, we're going to get rated very poorly. And I, I find that very, very disheartening. And, and I've had patients, you know, tell me straight to my face, I really like you, you're doing a great job, but no offense, I'm going to be complaining a lot about you. Because they get what, what they want when they complain, because doctors tend to be very fearful of patients writing bad reports, because a doctor that has a lot of patients complaining about them, um, you know, you don't get, you don't get reimbursed if, if patients are not happy. And instead of keeping patients healthy, I find that we're keeping patients happy. So they're happy and they could be dying, but uh, they're not healthy. And this is the way that the system is going. I've seen it changing a lot in the last few years compared to the years before that, I, that I've been working. In the last few years, it's, it's really a lot more about are the patients happy and getting what they want. Well, getting what you want isn't necessarily what you need, especially when you're, when you're very sick. And that's been a disheartening, a disheartening sight to see over the last few years. Gosh. Um, is, does the system feel sustainable to you, Nurse Jeffries? In other words, do you look at it and say, look, you know, for all its flaws, it's kind of working, and there's no reason why it can continue like this indefinitely. Um, you know, maybe we'll work some improvements along the way. It'll get a little better here, a little worse there. But basically, the system is sustainable. What, what is your feeling on that? It is or it isn't? I would say it definitely isn't, and I don't know what the solution is. I'm not a, a political professional or any kind of expert in, in policy or anything like that, far from it. But I would definitely say that this is not sustainable. Um, you have a, a percentage of the population paying for other people in the population, which I understand is necessary because not you know you need to care for the poor of your society. But the system is being taken advantage of, and it's being taken advantage of to such an extent that there's no way it's sustainable. There's, there's just not enough money. There's not enough resources. And I, frankly, the, the nurses are getting burnt out. I've seen doctors getting burnt out. It's just very difficult to take care of populations who you just feel are draining you. Um, and it's, so it's definitely not sustainable. Um, in closing, because I, I know you have your seaplane to, to jump into soon, um, the uh, sort of closing advice for anyone who's unfortunate enough to have to be in a hospital, what are the best tips you've got for somebody to um, have to sort of make their nurses happy and want to help them? Um, definitely, definitely a, a good idea to make the nurse happy. But nurses, are, are by, by the most part, you know, for the mo vast majority of nurses go into the profession because they really do care about people and they really want to take care of people. And they have good hearts, and, and nobody goes into it for the money or the hours, because I can tell you that both of them is, are not worth it. <laughs> um, but people go into it because they really want to take care of people. And if someone is, you know, really needs you and is, is really sick, then you know, you'll have a well, – chances are that nine times out of ten, you'll have a really great nurse there to take care of you. And nurses are really the backbone of the whole medical system. I mean, I would say that the doctor spends maybe – at a maximum 15 minutes of the day with the patient because they've got a lot of patients to see and that's just the way the system works but your nurse is with you for 12 and a half hours a day 
So they're really the ones uh, who are noticing things going wrong first, and they're they're the final gatekeeper for your medications and ch noticing medication errors that are sometimes you know ordered the wrong dose, and the nurse will be the one to catch it. And and so I would definitely say that that nurses are the the real backbone of the hospital and not so much advice for patients coming in but advice for policymakers and for the country in general is they're really going to have a, a hard time retaining good nurses if this system keeps up because it's it's very very draining um it's very draining for for nurses and it's something that i know a lot of my coworkers feel as well well thank you very much indeed it's been real fun talking with you and uh Thank you for spending a little time with our listeners on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Much appreciated. Uh, travel safely, and uh, God bless you. Take care of yourself. Uh, folks, we'll go to a quick break, and uh, we'll pick up with the show in just a few minutes. In, in, excuse me, in just a few moments. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Coming up today on Pat and Stu. Neurosurgery. Neurosurgery. Could be pretty important. That could be like a brain tumor. Yeah. And uh, by the way, uh, yeah, could be. Um, yeah, you can wait on that brain. We'll see you in, uh, what is it? August now. We'll see you in December 14th. Yeah. I know, but I, I, might, I, might, I might die before that. You might. Yeah, there is a. Sorry. Pat and Stu, weekdays at 5 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. We're back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And uh, one thing on uh, one thing about the way the world really works that never changes is uh, understanding male-female relationships. As a matter of fact, as a matter of fact, if you undertook, let's say you're raising children. If you undertook, as a parent, to teach them only three things really, really well, you will have fulfilled every possible obligation as a parent. And after that, the, author, the, the ballet lessons and the uh, karate lessons and the uh, extra, to, and the extra um, uh, classes in uh, remedial breathing are all completely uh, jam on the bread. The three things, the three areas you have to thoroughly and completely make sure your children understand, money, okay, what it is, its spiritual dimensions, where it comes from, uh, everything about money. Number two, everything about male-female relationships. And number three, everything about faith in God. Cover that, and you're done. And so a very important one-third of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin syllabus for effective childhood education um, is uh, male-female relationships. And so what are some of the things that um, are so necessary and so important? And I'm going to be sounding fairly negative about guys, single guys, in this, uh, in this segment, but um, please don't see that as in any way derogatory because I like guys. I am one. As a matter of fact, I, I'll probably have to do a sort of corrective segment showing you just how much I think of men. But um, right now, I am talking about women and single men, and uh, I'm talking about 
particularly single women who are dating. And you see, here's the trouble. Uh, I talk to a lot of these women, and uh, interestingly enough, it's, it, it can really jaundice you against men. Uh, I will tell you that um, there is a, a large category. I don't have numbers, okay? To some extent, this is anecdotal, but I talk to a lot of people, and uh, when people come up to me after appearances or lectures, I promise you, I'm always available. I'm very often, and uh, to the chagrin of my wife or my handlers or the people who, who sort of have the obligation to get me to wherever I've got to be next, I'm very often literally the last person to leave an auditorium where I've appeared or to leave a church where I've spoken because I hate missing an opportunity to talk with anybody who wants to talk to me. I talk to a lot of people. And uh, I will tell you that uh, I'm absolutely convinced that there is a large segment of women who um, become what they think of as lesbians. Now, uh, in reality, there is almost no relationship between uh, lesbianism and homosexuality. This, uh, I don't want to devote um, right now this, this uh, uh, segment to that particular topic, so I won't dive into that at length. But if you think about that, essentially uh, the, the absence of penetration is an absolutely crucial dimension, number one. Number two... Uh, there is also a crucial aspect to the, the sort of temporariness of things. And what I mean by that is that I do believe, and if you just look at the large number of women, many, including many celebrities, by the way, who are notable lesbians, and they come out, and yes, they like women, and then they, they shock everyone and disappoint their former uh, teammates by getting married to a man. It happens all the time. There's even a category called lesbians until graduation, lugs. Doesn't surprise me, doesn't, doesn't puzzle me, doesn't baffle me in any way at all. Uh, women are so badly treated on the campus. And, and yes, women allow themselves to be abominably abused on the campus. Yes, uh, the hookup culture is real, it's alive. Uh, the Tinder culture, right? And if you don't know what Tinder is, you are leading an enviably sheltered lifestyle. Uh, the, uh, all of these things have contributed to the extent to which women are abused and to which women uh, allow themselves to abuse. No question about it. Let's not, uh, let's not uh, ignore the culpability that rests upon women in this area. Bottom line is, it makes absolute sense to me that so many women uh, just decide to have nothing to do with men. Uh, anymore, and then what happens is they graduate, they get away from the toxic uh, campus culture, and they get into the real world, and they start meeting men who uh, are holding down jobs and uh, achieveth, and who are performing, and all of a sudden they discover, hey, you know, these aren't the retarded adolescents we've known for the last four years. They're actually real men here, and then all of a sudden, uh, the lesbianism is forgotten. And, and that's I, I've not yet heard of male homosexuals until graduation, but I have encountered many lesbians until graduation. So uh, all of that uh, to explain why it is that, uh, that this particular segment is devoted to women who have dealt and are dealing with more than their fair share of uh, adolescents. And by the way, male adolescence has nothing to do with age. Male adolescents, I've met 40-year-old male adolescents. I really have, and this is one of the reasons that almost every culture has an initiation process 
for men, not for women. Even Judaism has bar mitzvahs. And, and because we're dead scared of explaining to young girls, hey, you know what, boys and girls are different. There's a reason boys have bar mitzvahs. Uh, bar mitzvahs are not occasions of lavish and extravagant gifts or life-size effigies carved of the 13-year-old pimply adolescent uh, in chopped liver. No, a bar mitzvah is supposed to be a very serious spiritual kick in the pants um, that will jar him all the way up his spine to his head that will help to dislodge him from the seductive world of adolescence and turn him into an adult. That's what a bar mitzvah is supposed to be. And whether it's an initiation rite of the Maasai tribesmen in Kenya or of Arabs or of uh, uh, Native American Indians or as we say up here in British Columbia, Canada, First Nations, uh, whoever it is, they always had these initiation rites for men, not for women. Does that ever surprise you? Like, what happened? Oh, they're just patriarchal, masculine-dominated societies. They decided not to share this wonderful thing. Look, uh, most guys who go through a real initiation rite would happily have forgone it, right? Excepting, as I say, in contemporary American Judaism, the bar mitzvah has become an outrageous and extravagant opportunity for parents to show off to their friends and uh, for the young man to uh, flaunt uh, the absolutely nothing that he's achieved and his appalling ignorance of the world and everything to do with it. Thirteen-year-old boys are, <laughs> are not supposed to be celebrated. I mean, all they've done is stay alive, and even that is more a tribute to them, their, their parents than themselves. Uh, no, it's, it's meant to be a very serious uh, process, and in many parts of, uh, of Judaism, again, it's a minority of the American Jewish population, but in some parts, uh, notably the parts that take uh, the Torah more seriously, uh, it is not just a party. It is uh, a serious spiritual encounter that does leave the young man significantly altered uh, for the better. But uh, um, without any form, without any process that converts a young male into an adult male, he will remain an adolescent. And of course, in modern American culture, where the university is no longer a place to prepare for life, but it is a place to continue partying, and in fact, uh, there are universities that uh, recruit on their reputation as party schools, all we're doing is uh, really destroying American masculinity and in the process profoundly imperiling the future of the United States of America. And, uh, and so you women out there, and I've given you ample time to make sure that young women in your life or any women seeking marriage have uh, been able to get hold of this podcast or are able to listen now. Um, I will again stress that I, I certainly don't, I'm not disrespecting males in general here. Uh, remember, I am one. But um, my instincts lean towards protecting females. That's not just because I'm fortunately blessed with six wonderful daughters, uh, some of whom uh, have had uh, the opportunity of sharing time with Susan and me on our uh, boating trip in British Columbia. But um, it's also because that's part of Western civilization. When uh, ferries are imperiled in the Bay of Bengal, nobody ever hears women and children first. I, I want you to understand that when men went down with the Titanic after making sure that women and children were in the lifeboats first, please don't think that's a universal human instinct. It isn't. It belongs exclusively to Western civilization, Western civilization based as it is on the Bible. 
separate discussion. If that sounds shocking and outrageous to you, uh, then we need to make sure you hear the podcast devoted to the linkage between Western civilization um, and the Bible. But um, uh, when I say that uh, my instincts lean towards protecting females, that's not just as a father, but it is as uh, somebody who believes in Western civilization as being the only form of civilization on the planet. Oh, cultures? Sure, hundreds of cultures, but uh, civilizations, that's the one. And so uh, guys in general have to learn to take it on the chin, and, uh, and so, gentlemen, here it comes. Uh, I do get consulted very often uh, by young women who are in the process of, of meeting a potential spouse. And, um, and again, this is not due to any inherent skills or any prophetic insight uh, I may or may not possess. No, uh, this is only because I uh, am a teacher of ancient Jewish wisdom, and uh, that is what equips me to help young women have the right questions and understand those answers. So let me give you, uh, let me give you um, three quick examples of the kind of questions that as a young woman you want to ask a guy long before you waste six months of your life going out with him long before that. Um, and so a very early one is, uh, so what sort of work do you do? The answer, well, well, uh, well, um, well, okay, interpretation, are you ready? Any response starting with the word well means unemployed. Okay? When a guy is asked, so what sort of work do you do? And he doesn't immediately launch into an enthusiastic and passionate sounding explanation of what he's doing. He's probably unemployed. So be very cautious of any answer that begins with the word, well, and by the way, you'll hear it in television as well. You hear politicians being asked something by, uh, by, a, news, uh, by a television uh, pundit or anchor or commentator or interviewer. And the politician begins his answer with the word well. Be very cautious with such an answer because well basically <laughs> means I need time to think. Okay, here's a second question. Question number two, are you ready? How close are you to your family? How close are you to your family? Okay, if you hear an answer that sounds anything like this, it's trouble. Are you ready? Here's the wrong answer you're going to hear from many guys. How close are you to your family? My mother suffers from depression. My dad has always been a workaholic. My sister has issues. So, da-da-da-da-da. You know what the interpretation is? I'm an egotistical and insufferable idiot. So, be cautious of guys who's, who every member of their family has a problem, except the guy you're talking to. He's the perfect, watch out for those. So, if somebody is incapable of talking positively about his parents and about his siblings, don't walk, run to get away. It's not worth a waste of time. Are there exceptions to this rule? Uh, yes, uh, probably 0.001% uh, are exceptions, and it's nobody you're likely to meet, so just treat this as a rule, please. Uh, third question. How do you feel about God and faith? 
look, I don't care what your position on God and faith is, but you'd be crazy not to ask that question. I'm speaking to women. Uh, and uh, here's the answer you've got to be aware of. The answer that says, I've always felt that religion was an intensely personal matter, da-da-da-da-da, etc., etc. I've always felt that religion was a personal matter. Okay, what that means is, I will fake an interest in God to retain your interest in me. You get the idea, right? And um, the very biggest question of all, the, the, the real issue that you need to know, apart from these three, the biggest one. Uh, that'll be coming up in the very next segment. Meanwhile, please visit my website. It's the place where you can subscribe to my free weekly emails for tools. It's the place where, yes, you can write to me, and I value that very much. I cherish all the responses I get. And it's also the place that you can explore my store for further resources in which I delve far more deeply into many of the topics I discuss on the podcast, but in a way far more uh, profoundly than it's possible to do on a public uh, podcast. So, for instance, talking about men and women, uh, a very crucial resource I produce is something called Madam I Am Adam, Decoding Marriage Secrets from Eden. And uh, that you can explore, read more about, even hear a little bit about on the website. Go to the store at youneedarabbi.com or rabbidaniellappin.com. A quick pause, and when we come back, the, the, the last really big issue that uh, any woman would be crazy not to explore and uh, be very careful of with any man she's considering spending any time with at all. Be right back. The Blaze On Demand. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin. Chris Salcedo. We have been treated to steady diets and stories about how the light footprint lead from behind foreign policy is putting us at risk. For example, the, the revelation that our Marines can no longer deploy on Navy ships, that we have to hitch a ride on, on foreign ships because we don't have enough ships in the fleet to accommodate our Marines. Chris Salcedo, Saturdays, noon to 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin, back with you on the uh, Blaze, the podcast, the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. My solemn mission, uh, revealing how the world really works. And uh, we're talking about the way the world really works, particularly in the area of male-female relationships. And in the previous segment, I discussed three important questions that any woman contemplating spending any time with a man. I'm not talking about, heaven forbid, six months of your life. I'm talking about uh, more than one date, frankly. And so uh, uh, I've covered those three, but, but here is really one of the biggest, okay? And that is a man who has not yet um, cut the ties with his mother. Look, any guy who is still tied to his mother in a particular way that I'll try and explain is somebody who is no way ready to form a tie with you. And so you really need to understand 
what the nature is of his relationship to his mother. If it is a relationship of emotional and needy dependence, and yes, there are men like that. And he will, uh, he will reveal it by uh, using almost childhood uh, terminology as he relates or, t or talks about his mom. And of course you should ask him about his mom. Of course you should try and delve and dig because it's in talking about his mother that he's going to reveal so much about himself. And so uh, what you want to find out very much, uh, very, very clearly, is the extent to which he remains um, emotionally needy in terms of his mom. Is his mom still supplying uh, some of what every child needs, which is a, a sense of, of love and a sense of connection and a sense of belonging and a sense of groundedness and, and a sense of uh, um, a, a place to call home, as it were, all of which is obviously not meant to exclude a close and re loving relationship with his mother, very positive. But I'm talking about something else, and you'll recognize it when you see it, once you've been alerted to it and you know what it is, which is um, a, um, uh, a, a less healthy dependence on his mom. What am I talking about, and, and where does this derive from? Like, like everything else I've been telling you about, it's uh, from ancient Jewish wisdom, which has been the, the subject of my obsession for my entire life. And... Uh, or at least to date, I should say. And uh, I, will, um, uh, I will tell you actually the actual verse because it's fairly well known. It's the final verse. It's the final verse in chapter 2 of Genesis. No, it's not. It's the second final verse. And it's, uh, therefore, a man must leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Okay, now, sequence in the Hebrew Scripture is very important. It's really very important indeed. So I want you to notice two aspects of the sequencing, and there's many more to talk about, but this is the kind of thing I would cover in much greater detail in the resources on my website than I feel is appropriate to do on the podcast. But enough information to help you through the topic we're, we're discussing in the segment uh, is definitely something I am going to include. And so, uh, the second last verse of chapter 2 in Genesis, Therefore shall a man leave, okay, who? His mother and his father, or his father and his mother? Not sure? Check the text. And he shall cleave to his wife, and then they shall become one flesh. Um, in case the... The, 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 the language didn't immediately clarify itself to you. They become one flesh means sex, sexual intimacy, physical intimacy, right? So that's at the end of the process. <laughs> I'm just saying. Now, let's take a look at that sequence. Therefore, you know, God is really laying out here, and, um, and, and whether, <laughs> again, for, for many of you, and I, I, I fully understand and appreciate it, for many of you, the source of the information I impart is utterly and completely irrelevant. So bear with me a little bit because I know there are many people for whom 
the biblical and ancient Jewish wisdom origin of a lot of this stuff is, uh, is not only interesting but also valuable and perhaps makes the information more useful and more valuable. And so, um, first of all, so what we've got now is a description of a uh, of a an incipient embryonic relationship, and it says that before there can be any cleaving to his wife, and before certainly before there can be any sexual contact or connection, um, there first of all has to be a leaving. The man has to leave his father and his mother. Okay, first question is now, why do you suppose there is not a parallel? Right, in this podcast I said that uh, there is technically, in, 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 in reality, there is no bat mitzvah. It's a, uh, an artificial creation on the part of parents and congregations and rabbis and synagogues who are just scared of telling young children the truth which is young ladies don't need a bat mitzvah or an initiation to adulthood any more than an NFL player who has not had his arm broken needs a cast. You do not put plaster casts on the limbs of people who haven't broken them. You do not put initiation rites on people who don't need them. You see, ever since they were little girls, my daughters, were looking at bridal magazines. My daughters were like three, four, five, six years old, nine years old, ten years old. The house was littered with bridal magazines. It's a miracle I didn't break one of my limbs, slipping and sliding down the hallway on a carpet of bridal magazines and pictures. Now, do you think my son ever looked at a bridal magazine? I doubt that he has to this day. Guys do not think of marriage. Girls start almost at birth. Not quite, but almost. And so little girls envisage weddings. They do. They love weddings. They love attending weddings. Little girls envisage their own wedding. And they see the staircase they'll walk down. And they'll see that their, their wedding dress in enormous detail, by the way. And next to them they'll see a tuxedo, a very smart tuxedo, with a, an oval hole where the face goes. They don't actually see the face, or other than the fact that they know he's good-looking. But everything else about the marriage is there. It's very important to young women, very important. To guys, a whole lot less so. And so guys have to be initiated to move towards marriage. There has to be an acculturation, because ordinarily it's not going to happen at all. It just doesn't, and the evidence is take a look around you. Take a look at what we euphemistically call the inner city, you know, a, a dysfunctional part of America, which has nothing whatsoever to do with color, by the way, and I've covered that extensively in the past. Uh, the, uh, the, the dysfunctionality there is basically family shattering. And the culprit, not color, government, of course, because they have interfered with the economic dimension of family. And when the government interferes with the economic dimension of anything, chaos and confusion are inevitably the result, let alone after chaos and confusion comes absolute calamity. And so um, in, uh, in, in reality, for a, 
a young man to, to, to move towards marriage, which is absolutely essential, he's got to have the impetus. But the obstacle, he hasn't yet left his father and his mother. What does that mean? What do you think leaving your father is? The answer, economic dependence. That's what that means. Ancient Jewish wisdom explains that um, therefore shall a man leave his father, he must acquire economic independence. Look, ladies, this seems to be almost so obvious that barely uh, needs saying. But if the guy has not yet acquired any form of economic independence or is demonstrably on the path to that, you know, let's imagine that uh, he's in his last year of apprenticeship as a uh, machine tool operator. And, uh, and so right now he's making very little money, but <laughs> guess what? Next year he's going to be doing very well indeed. Uh, or a, a guy is um, in his last year of college not taking middle period Etruscan pottery as a major, but he's taking uh, science, engineering, mathematics, technology, computer topics, things that at the present time in the American economy actually offer a potential of a job. Uh, and, you know, so right now he's a student, no problem. But somebody who has no economic independence plus no plan and not just a plan, because a plan is indistinguishable from a daydream if it doesn't have a schedule attached. Nothing, no plan, no schedule for achieving economic independence. Move on, ladies. Don't, run, don't walk. Run. Get away. Waste the time. Therefore, shall a man leave his father? Yes, he has to leave the sense of economic dependence. And by the way, most women don't have the faintest idea of how utterly traumatic that can be for men. Talk to guys about it. If, if you're on a date and you're short of conversational material, say to the guy, uh, tell me about what it was like to when you first got that feeling that you're going to need to find a way of making money in your life. You know, because up till then your dad took care of everything. What was it like? And most men, most good men, will tell you with, with total recall because most guys do remember that moment that period that it, and sometimes over the course of weeks or a couple of months where it begins to dawn on us wait a second we got to do it ourselves and uh, and and most honest guy will, guys will recount it <laughs> you'll almost see the terror in their eyes as they relive those traumatic moments it's um, that is what leaving the father means in the second last verse in the second book of Genesis. And then after that, he's got to leave his mom. That's the next thing. What is that about? Okay, well, remember I said earlier that we do not find a parallel verse that says, and by the way, therefore shall a woman leave her father and her mother. Doesn't say that. Have you wondered why? Why does the second last verse of chapter 2 of Genesis just say, therefore shall a, a man leave his father and his mother, then he'll be ready to cleave to a wife? How come it doesn't say, and therefore a woman must leave her father and her mother, and then she'll be ready to cleave to her husband? Reason? Like I said, because women are born ready to leave their fathers and mothers and cleave to their husbands. That's why in Western civilization, women take and embrace the names of their husbands. 
they they are delighted to become a Mrs. Jones, even if their original name was Felicity Winterbottom. They're absolutely delighted to become Mrs. Timothy Jones and to renounce the uh, Felicity Winterbottom name. Sometimes they'll be Mrs. Felicity Jones. But um, bottom line is, women are by nature ready to embrace a man. Uh, and this is why it is that on the high street of streets of uh, so many small American towns that, that still retain a link to the past, you will see many, many, many storefronts that say Brown and Son, you know, or Smith and Son, or uh, Greengrocers, uh, uh, you know, Jeffries and Son, whatever it is, or Sons. And you'll find uh, uh, publishing companies, uh, a company that I've been um, associated with um, is John Wiley and Sons. It was a New York publishing house. Um, how often do you find a company name that says, you know, so-and-so and daughter or so-and-so and daughters? Almost never. Why is that? Well, let me explain that as soon as we come back in the next segment. You wait right there. More to come from Rabbi Daniel Lappin, revealing how the world really works. On demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Don't miss the morning blaze with Doc and Skip. My wife, we have different duties. Everybody does different things. When we go on long trips like this, I drive and she rides. And those, this, is, this is how we do it. Her duty is to ride, ride and sleep. She occasionally manages her social media. She does that too, yeah. So that's kind of our... That's kind of the deal that we've worked out. The Morning Blaze with Doc and Skip. Weekday mornings, 6 to 9 Eastern, on the Blaze Radio Network. We now return with Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where your rabbi reminds you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. And foremost among those things that never change are male-female relationships. And uh, that's what we're talking about. And um, uh, I was reminiscing with you on journeys, road trips through the heartland of America. How often you find businesses named, uh, you know, Smith and Sons or uh, Thompson and Son or Jones and Son. Uh, but you will drive many, many miles before you see any storefront. Uh, labeled uh, Jones and Daughter, uh, or uh, Thomas and Daughters. Very, very rare. Why? Well, it's obvious. The reason is that uh, Mr. Jones's daughters are now married to somebody else's family. And so their involvement in a business would more than likely be in the business to, into which the family in which they marry to is involved, not their fathers. That's the way of the world. That's how God created men and women. Or, for those of you who prefer, that's how men and women evolved through a lengthy process of unaided materialistic evolution. So, uh, bottom line is, either way, whichever, whichever way it is, the, uh, the, the reality of it is that women uh, don't need to be taught, acculturated, uh, initiated into leaving the families into which they were born and embracing husbands and the husband's families. Um, we, we do it 
they do it all the time. And, uh, and that is, um, I mean, there, there are so many indications, so many pieces of evidence that, that illustrate this intrinsic reality. And so on the general rule that uh, in the Torah there are no directives for things that we would do automatically, uh, almost every directive is for something that goes against our natures, against our instincts, things that are difficult to do. Uh, for instance, there's no rule at all in the five books of Moses that says, Jews, please be sure to eat three solid meals a day. I'm, your, I'm the Lord your God, and I direct you. You must eat three solid meals a day. You don't have to do that because other than in oppressive times and in periods of uh, terrible oppression, uh, Jews can be counted upon to eat three solid meals a day. Under normal, happy, healthy circumstances, malnutrition, not a big problem among American Jews. And so uh, anything that is told as an instruction in the Torah uh, is something that uh, doesn't come simple. For women, leaving their fathers and their mothers uh, is, is relatively easy and straightforward. It's not a big traumatic thing. But for men, it can be massively traumatic. Therefore, shall a man leave his father? That's right, financial independence. Make no mistake about it, it is difficult. And, you know, boys can sometimes be four, five, six, seven years old. I mean, I'm talking about before adolescence, uh, before puberty, when they realize that they're going to have to do this. Very often, for most men, it is early. That young guys realize that uh, financial reality is important and that uh, they have to do it on their own. It's very difficult. Sometimes, sometimes fathers even have to be a, a tad cruel. They have to sometimes say to their sons, well, that's it. This is as far as it goes. Um, you're going to be on half uh, from here onwards, or you can, you can stay with us, but you're going to have to pay rent. It's going to be less than market rate. But, um, and sometimes you have to do that because it's kicking the fledgling out of the nest. And I have watched, because of some of these wonderful video cameras that have been placed by various nature organizations at nests, uh, I've actually <laughs> had the, the, the thrill of watching on video as mother birds actually nudge their fledglings out of the nest and force them to take those few first frightening moments into flight. And... Um, uh, during uh, the, um, the, uh, the Lappin annual family boating trip, which, which is, is coming to an end, so uh, soon you will no longer be uh, tormented by inadequate audio quality and uh, noises on the outside like uh, seagulls and other things. But uh, we've actually seen a number, I mean, uh, we've been very fortunate, we've seen a lot of seals, mums and pups. That's what you call baby seals, or pups. And uh, we've actually seen the mother seal sort of teaching the baby seal how to go about things. And she's also got to, got to in, and they do it instinctively, of course, but teaching the baby seal uh, with a combination of uh, sort of maternal compassion, but also a desire for the, the offspring to achieve uh, independence, because that way they is the only hope they have of uh, surviving and not becoming... Uh, the uh, prey of predators like orcas or killer whales. And all of that sort of goes on around here. But parents sometimes have to do that. And particularly it falls to fathers with their sons. 
And so that is um, uh, an absolute requirement where um, the father has to make sure that his son leaves him in that sense. Obviously, there's no departure of, uh, you know, it's not, it's not an ending of the relationship or anything, but it's specifically financial. And guess what? Susan Lappin is waving her arms at me in the saloon of this boat here, which n- n- normally I can record the podcast in solitude in the studio. But uh, over here we are close together, which frankly is, is part of what we love about this trip, and uh, I think it's wonderful for our marriage. Yes, uh, Susan. Thank you, Mary. As you know, I'm thinking as you're speaking about the son, the father sending the son and urging him to get economic independence. He also extols the virtue of father and son for vindignity. Ah, Susan says she hears a contradiction. Um, she he- I, Well, I thought she, well, as soon as she said contradiction, I thought she was going to say that uh, it's mother seals and mother birds and what I'm talking about is is fathers and sons. And the answer to that, obviously, is straightforward, which she knew as well as I do, which is it's one of the very big differences between animals and human beings. Uh, the role of the father in human beings is unique. Um, the role of the father in animals is, is quite different. It's fleeting. And, um, and in fact, the, the father seal is nowhere to be seen in, in these uh, British Columbia scenarios that we're enjoying. And uh, the father bird is, is not involved in teaching the fledglings, but it is the father human who's teaching his sons to achieve financial independence. The contradiction Susan spotted was that I spoke about uh, storefronts, you know, that were uh, Davidson and Son. Uh, and so, you know, where is the economic independence there? Well, look, uh, it's a wonderful thing to be able to work in your father's business. It's a wonderful thing to be part of that business and uh, for the business to be strong enough and viable enough and to provide an exciting enough economic environment uh, for a son uh, uh, to uh, for a son to go ahead and stretch his wings in that sense and uh, and it's it's not a contradiction because uh, everybody knows that as wonderful as it is to work for your father it also is very difficult and uh, I've often said that uh, working for the worst father is better than worth working for the best stranger. And that's, you know, that's an aphorism of mine, but uh, it's obviously not true 100% of the time. Uh, there are wonderful things about being able to work for a father and to work in a family business, but uh, they are very tough things as well. Uh, I have counseled and do counsel many smaller companies uh, on succession issues, how to make certain that um, that strong entrepreneurial founders are able to convey responsibility and independence to their sons. Because, uh, guys, if, if you're in a business like that and your son or sons are working in your business, um, if, if you do not allow them enough independence to stretch their wings and to do their thing, even though it's going to end up uh, moving the company in a direction different from your visions, uh, it's not going to endure. And so that's, that's a whole different topic, and it's a, it's a very real one. But, um, but a great deal of genuine wisdom is needed for father-son businesses to thrive. Uh, the wisdom is needed on the part of the father primarily um, and on the part of the son, patience and humility. Um, you know, you may, you may realize or may see that your dad is not proficient in uh, Instagram, Pictogram, Periscope, and uh, everything else in social media? Possibly not. 
but um, if he's got a thriving business that he's built up, maybe from what he got from his father, who knows? Your grandfather may have started the business, and if so, you're very fortunate. Uh, and you have to realize that although your father may well lack certain uh, modern technological familiarities, at the same time, he obviously understands how the world really works uh, because he's running and built a successful business from before you were born. Um, is there a legitimate role for you to take it into new and vitally important directions? Obviously. But it's got to be coupled with um, humility and patience. And on the part of the, the father, there you know, you've got a good son. And by the way, what many fathers wisely do, and I recommend it in many cases, not all but many, is that before you bring your son into your business, uh, you have him work for somebody else. Have him experience working for somebody who's not related to him. And only after he's acquired some of that experience does he then come into your business. I think that's important in the majority of cases. But, um, but of course, for you, the tough thing is now being willing to relinquish some control, relinquish some autonomy, because... Uh, you don't really want a son who's nothing but an order taker. Uh, you don't want a son who, who has no entrepreneurial zealousness at all. So you're going to have to stand by and let him do things. And you are probably going to also have to let him make mistakes. And you have to remember that unsolicited advice is almost never welcome. These are all things that uh, you need to do. At any rate, back to the second last verse of chapter 2 in Genesis. Therefore shall a man leave his father, we've covered that, and his mother. All right, we understand that uh, the financial independence must come first. The emotional independence from his mother has to come a little bit after that. Um, there are men who, uh, who don't break free of their mothers. And I, I don't mean that derogatively. I don't mean that mothers have become uh, these cartoonish, freakish caricatures of mothers. No, not at all. Um, there are people whose mothers still, there are adults whose mothers haunt them in a way and um, who will sit in chairs at uh, $150 an hour, uh, uh, counselors, psychologists, and so on, and they talk about their mothers on and on and on and on they talk about their mothers and how they what their mothers did to them and the things their mothers did that made them the way they are trust me if the guy you're dating ma'am is uh, spending a lot of money at a therapist talking about his mom you need to run in the other direction as hard and as quickly as you can for sure uh, that's a definite indication that he this man has not yet left his mother, as to whether he left his father, that's a separate topic we've discussed. But right now, uh, a man must uh, leave his mother, and only after that can he cleave to a wife. Only after that is he ready for marriage. And only after all of that will it make sense for them to become one flesh. There's a lot of material. Ancient Jewish wisdom devotes an enormous amount of material to um, what it means for a man to be ready for marriage. Much, much less on what it means for a woman to be ready for marriage because she's almost always ready for marriage. Almost always. I'll tell you that uh, uh, with a great deal of marital counseling and premarital counseling, I've got to tell you, I can't think of too many cases. I, 
I think maybe one or two come to mind. But there really are not a lot of cases where guys tell me, you know, we've been dating for uh, four months, five months. I really want to start moving towards marriage now. But she's not interested in marriage. How many times do you think that happens, right? Hardly ever. But overwhelmingly, 99.9% of the cases I've been involved in, it's the woman saying, you know what, we, we've been dating for four months, five months, six months. Tragically, there have been cases where they say be for two years. It should never be allowed to happen. Uh, and every time I bring up marriage, he, uh, he, he gets unhappy. He says, I'm pressuring. Um, you know, it's, I get it all the time. Women say, you know, um, I, I, I can't help it. I see uh, couples out with a baby, and I, I, I'm drawn to the baby. And, uh, and, 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 and John, or this guy I'm dating, doesn't want it. And he sort of gets uncomfortable when I, I cuddle the baby. Yeah, of course he gets uncomfortable because he has no interest in getting married. You know why? Because he hasn't yet left his father or his mother. But um, that then becomes really one of the most important things, ladies. In addition to the three questions I told you to ask in the last segment, make absolutely sure that you explore the extent to which he has fulfilled the second last verse in chapter 2 of Genesis. Has he left his father and has he left his mother? My website again, youneedarabbi.com or rabbidaniellappin.com takes you to the same place. Love to see you there, love to hear from you, and uh, above all, love it that you're listening to this podcast. Let me know, will you? Let me know you are. Let me know what you think. And uh, do that by hitting the Contact Us tab at rabbidaniellappin.com. A quick pause, and then back, and I'm going to tell you, I told you earlier, this isn't an attack on men. I'm going to tell you some of the great things about men, okay? That coming right up here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. Stay tuned. Spilling ancient solutions for modern problems in the areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Mike Slater. And you think, well, we're not doing anything wrong. I know you're not. But anything that can be perceived, anything that can be manipulated by the media to look like hate, they're going to grab it and they're going to run with it. But, you know, and I don't know if this is the right answer, but a day of service. A day of service cannot possibly be spun to look like a hateful, evil thing, right? So we got to do something where it's just beyond reproach. Mike Slater. Saturdays at 3 p.m. Eastern on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome back to Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand, only on the Blaze Radio Network. Revealing how the world really works, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin. And uh, yes, about 30 years ago, uh, it became evident that uh, nations in Asia uh, were aborting a disproportionate number of female fetuses, and in many cases were actually uh, committing infanticide, again, disproportionately on, on girls. Why is that? Something I touched on just a little bit earlier on the show was that uh, there are many storefronts around American towns that still show that sons join their father's businesses, but not daughters. Daughters go into another person's family. And so uh, to many of these cultures, not based on Judeo-Christian principles, where the role of women, even daughters, that are going to join someone else's family, are a vital part of your life. That vision is not there, and so daughters are worth less in parts of Africa and parts of Asia because sons become part of your social security system. Daughters become part of someone else's 
and particularly in Asian countries that impose a one-child rule, uh, punish draconian penalties and punish with, with uh, I mean, just sheer brutality. Uh, in cases like that, if couples were being allowed only to have and raise one child, uh, they wanted it to be a man. They wanted it to be a boy child. And um, very, very bad things happened. One of the results of that is that uh, there is actually now a girl shortage in some Asian countries. And that means that very large numbers, particularly in, and we're talking about, you know, India, over a billion people. That's a thousand million. In America, the population is 300 million. In Canada, it's a tenth of that, about 35 million. Um, Japan, 125 million. But India and China are both over a thousand million. Okay, and so gender disproportions become very serious. And it means hundreds of thousands. No, I'm not sure the figure is hundreds of thousands. I, uh, I'm not going to give the actual number, but very large numbers of men are destined to never get married. Very big problem. Traditionally, a problem like this is solved by uh, going to war because typically in war, you are trying to improve yourself economically and sexually. You're trying to get women and economic resources. That is what war brings, at least when successfully uh, executed. And so um, we certainly ought to be aware of latent uh, social disquiet in uh, country, cultures and countries that have a, a very real female shortage. In a Judeo-Christian tradition, we, uh, we welcome daughters just as much as sons. And while, yes, it obviously is true that sons do remain uh, part of your family in a way differently from daughters, as a matter of fact, in, uh, in Judaic principles and ancient Jewish wisdom, a husband, a man, uh, is obligated without end to um, respect of his mother and his father. And it's not just a, a sort of emotion. It's, it, it comes along with very practical implications of things that a man needs to do for his father or his mother, even if he's married. But a woman, a woman's obligation to her parents once she's married diminish, they change. Now, it is true, of course, most women will feel a closeness to their daughters, even after their daughters get married, uh, that they don't feel to their sons. It's a very different thing. But in spite of that, in spite of that emotional connection, it is a, uh, a very real thing that your daughters do become part of someone else's family. They don't retain the same relationship with your family that your sons do. Nonetheless, they are of equivalent value. Why? Because it builds connections to other families. Your closeness to other families in, is enhanced, and that's what builds community. And with community comes connection and communication and collaboration and cooperation and ultimately creativity on an economic level. And I can only tell you that in the Jewish community, I couldn't even begin to count the number of instances I'm aware of in which um, a, a person's business dramatically grew because of a relationship with the family into which his daughter married, a family he didn't know before until his daughter met the young man 
and then the parents met the parents and closeness and friendship uh, developed and uh, out of that flowed real significance. It's an important thing. Um, I'll also want to point out, and again, if you don't mind, back to uh, ancient Jewish wisdom here, <coughs> when I want to point out that, um, interestingly enough, in the Bible, God provides no information. I'm talking about the first couple of chapters of Genesis. Zero information on the ingredients that went into making the sun and the moon or the stars or from what God built camels and cows and kangaroos and cats. But uh, he does specify the material from which he constructed the human being. It was earth. Isn't that interesting? Right? Nothing else. In no nothing else does God give the recipe or the ingredients only for human beings. And this link between human beings and the earth um, has has significance, not just in burial, you know, from the earth we come, the earth we return. No, not just that, but um, early scholars of many parts of Western civilization retained this concept of a human-earth link by deriving the word human directly from the Latin word for earth, which is humus, H-U-M-U-S. So in Hebrew, a human is an adam, and the word for earth is Adama, ground. And so Adam came from Adama, or human came from humus. And so we've got the Spanish word for man is hombre. And again, listen to the word. You know, you know the MB connection to hombre is H and M are the, uh, are the uh, operative consonants in that word, retaining that link to humus, the HM connection once again. Um, if a man is a real man, then he's not arrogant and high and mighty. A real man is a down-to-earth man, is he not? He is seen as a humble human or a humble hombre, right? Uh, what happens if you bring somebody too much down to earth? That would be called humiliating him, humiliating him. And once again, it's putting him down too far down. Uh, if you put him even further down, you kill him, and that's called homicide. Again, human, HM, humus, earth, uh, and you put him in the ground. How about if you take a, a victim of a homicide out of the ground for a medical examination? You exhume him. And all of this flows from the Lord's language, uh, which is Hebrew, that links uh, Adam and Adama, as I said, found in the first few chapters of Scripture. And uh, it, it just becomes really important to understand that uh, what we're being told here is the importance of, well, let me, let me put it this way. There's one more distinction between animals and humans, and that is it says explicitly that, uh, uh, that, that God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And, of course, uh, lions and llamas also have life to them, and they breathe, and they have lungs, but nowhere does it say that God breathed his breath of life. The breath of God's spiritual vitality um, sort of exerts a subconscious pull in us towards heaven, um, in, in, in much the same way that if you sometimes see at parties where kids are given helium balloons, after a little while, some little kid loses a grip on the string, and that helium uh, balloon, um, once it is no longer tethered, uh, floats off up into the atmosphere and eventually 
bursts as the uh, the uh, the, uh, the air pressure diminishes, the balloon swells, finally bursts and falls to earth. But uh, we human beings also have an ability to lose contact with earth if we're not tethered to reality. If we're not constantly reminded that we are of the earth, we have the ability of sort of losing touch with reality. Have you ever seen academics? Have you ever encountered professors or people who operate on such an intellectual uh, area and sometimes begin to take inordinate pride in being super intellectuals? Have you ever noticed that sometimes they're unbelievably stupid in the ways of the world? That's right. Uh, there's such a thing as uh, being too lofty and floating away like that balloon until you burst. Uh, real men are constantly reminded that we are of the earth. Yes, of course it's important that we remember that we're imbued with a pull towards our creator. But that can also be problematic if it's not matched by a parallel and equal connection with reality. And that's why you'll sometimes hear uh, expressions, and they're complementary expressions, where people will say about a guy, oh, he's got his feet on the ground. That's a good thing. What they're saying is, he's not like that helium balloon. Or they'll say about a woman, she's so down to earth. It's a good thing. It's wonderful. I mean, who wants to have a wife who's not down to earth? Wife who's not down to earth can't budget, doesn't understand. I, I don't even have to spell it out for you. It's so obvious. These people remember that they are of the earth. And, uh, and that is why it is that whether you are looking to hire a person in your, uh, in your business or whether you are a woman who is looking to get married, and this sort of takes us full circle, uh, one of the things you want to know is whether the candidate is down to earth and has his feet on the ground. And again, and this sort of ends the advice to women of this podcast, if you are dating a man who's not down to earth, if you're dating a man who is, and again, uh, overly intellectual, not connected to, the, to reality, not of the earth, please run for your life. And um, and uh, talking of being down to earth, uh, I really I, I want to uh, tip my kippah, as it were, to uh, Pittsburgh Steelers linebacker James Harrison. Okay, you know what he's done? His kids got a participation award, <laughs> and he handed it back. He said, "No way!" I I was so impressed. He said he was taking away the participation trophies awarded to his six- and eight-year-old kids until they actually earn a real trophy. He says, I'm not about to raise two boys to be men by making them believe they are entitled to something just because they tried their best. Uh, that is a great example of a man who is tied to the earth, who's tied to reality, has his feet on the ground. Yeah, there's the stupid participation awards. Have you heard about them? Um, where uh, in spite of the fact that life isn't always fair and in spite of the fact that you can work your hardest and do your best and expend every ounce of energy, the fact is that sometimes things just don't work out the way you hoped or imagined. It's the way the world really works. But somewhere in the misguided way that American culture has evolved, they've got the notion that kids have to be raised in a, uh, a, a cocoon of unreality. 
and there's no hardships and no heartbreaks, and you get a trophy for everything, for just being you. It's terrible, absolutely horrible. And so what happens is that um, sports teams for kids have no losers. Right? The winners get a winning trophy, and the others get an equally nice, same-size trophy, by the way. It's called a participation trophy. That's another example of being disconnected from reality, not being a real hombre, not being a real man. Tremendously damaging, tremendously destructive, and uh, everything that's here on this podcast that I, your radio rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, am privileged to try and combat and try and present you with all the intellectual ammunition possible in order to defeat this uh, growing tendency in the world in which we live. Value you very much. Appreciate you listening to the show. Uh, visit my website at rabbidaniellappin.com. And yes, go forth and have a prosperous and healthy week. God bless. Till next time. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.